0: Hey there, welcome back to Fertility Cafe. I'm your host, Eloise Drain. Welcome to episode 68 of Fertility Cafe. In this episode, we'll be getting to the real, sometimes ugly side of the fertility industry. While these things are never comfortable or easy to talk about, I believe it's important for intended parents, donors and surrogates to know all of the risks and possibilities before consenting to participate in third-party reproduction. Egg donation began in the early 1980s. The first successful in vitro fertilization procedure took place in 1978 in the United Kingdom, and the first pregnancy using donated eggs was reported in Australia in 1983. As of today, we don't know just how many women have been egg donors and just how many babies have been born from donor eggs. On top of that, we're still trying to understand the long-term effects of egg donation. According to a study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, egg donation nearly doubled from 2000 to 2010, where there were more than 18,000 donor cycles in the U.S. alone. In 2014, the CDC reported that the number of donor cycles was 20,481 for that year alone. In 2019, The National Summary reported a total of 330,772 egg donation cycles, including 83,946 infants born that year from donor eggs. The problem is there's very little research being conducted on the long-term effects of egg donation, and no one is keeping track of all of the women who may be experiencing effects. On with me today is Dr. Diane Tober who is trying to remedy that problem. Dr. Tober is a medical anthropologist, researcher, and associate professor at the University of Alabama and founder of the website and important work being done at eggdonorresearch.org. Diane, welcome and thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, good. Well, I know before we started the podcast, I, I was telling you I've I've been all day researching you and finding so much fascinating information. So I'm excited for us to get into to detail because there's so much to talk about. But first, would you mind kind of just sharing a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a medical
1: anthropologist. I got my PhD from UC Berkeley and UC San Francisco, and I am now associate professor at University of Alabama in the Department of Anthropology and the Institute for Social Science Research. I've been doing work in the area of assisted reproduction and compensated donation for about 30 years now. My first research that turned into a book I conducted about 1989 to early late 1990s on single women and lesbian couples using sperm donors to create their families. And uh, now I've shifted to, my, to research on egg donors. And that book is called Romancing the Sperm, if people are interested in, in taking a look
0: at it. Awesome. So what inspired you, though, to start researching egg donation?
1: Well, it's um it's an interesting story. So I, at the time, I was working in the nonprofit sector as an associate director for a nonprofit organization that was focusing on genetics and society and justice. And there was a bill in the state of California where I was living at the time, and it was seeking to allow women to be compensated to provide eggs for research, and our organization was uh, opposed to that bill because of the lack of research on egg donors' decisions and experiences and and medical outcomes, you know, the health impacts, and there was a concern also that, you know, it, it would enhance this tiered market in human eggs, so where you have some groups of women that might be more inclined to provide eggs for fertility treatment, Other groups of women, for example, predominantly low-income women and women of color might be sort of siphoned off to the research eggs, right? And so from that justice standpoint, from the standpoint of how economic precarity can drive women to make decisions or anybody to make decisions that they might not do otherwise in order to find sort of a salve or or a solution to economic hardship without knowing the consequences, without having informed consent, we were concerned that that would be an issue. So during the work on that piece of legislation to oppose that bill, which we um, successfully did at that time, although it came back years later, I had been in contact with an egg donor, uh, Raquel Kuhl, who was one of the co-founders of We Are Egg Donors. And she and I were talking and she knew about my earlier work on sperm donation. And she was saying, you know, we really need to have somebody doing research on egg donors because at the time in 2013, there was practically nothing out there. Mm -hmm. Now it's a little more so, but in 2013, especially on the health aspects of it. So I started collaborating with her and her group and interviewing and, and collecting surveys from about the first 30 people who joined her group. And now we have about, or I have about 600 some odd surveys, 200 plus interviews with egg donors. And I've also conducted research on egg donation in the United States and Spain, because they're two very different regulatory systems that also impact people's healthcare, decision making, et cetera.
0: So is that the parent study, the IVADO? I think I'm. I don't know if I'm saying it right. Project in 2015. Yeah, Ovado. Like Ovado. Ova, yeah. Okay. Avado, oh, there I you know. go. Yeah. Okay, I see that now.
1: <laughs> Ovado donation. Yeah, Ovado. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I started the. Uh, it turned into the Ovado project. Uh, I kind of came up with that name in about 2015, and the overarching study is looking at, on a very broad scale, sort of the transactions surrounding human eggs and the impact on the people who are going through these different processes, whether for egg freezing, for egg donation, paid egg donation, unpaid egg donation, what have you. And then also in the U.S. and Spain. So looking at things from a more global perspective rather than just entirely based in the United States.
0: Gotcha. And can you share about that study? So it started off with initially looking at egg donors
1: in the United States. And then it grew from there with funding from the National Science Foundation allowed me to expand it from, you know, from just the U.S. to a comparative U.S.-Spain project. Like I said, so far we have, I think, close to around 600 donor surveys in English and another 150 or so for Spanish speaking people, particularly mostly from Spain. I haven't analyzed all the data yet, but some of the findings that I find interesting so far is, especially in the United States, how driven people are to provide eggs to help uh, offset student loan debt. Mm. Um, And that's something you don't find anywhere else in the world. With the high cost of education that we have here, you really have this large population of young women and and people with ovaries who don't identify as women becoming egg providers in order to pay off student loans. And so that kind of starts the the question of, of, well, you know, where are our priorities in terms of, young people when you have a situation where the cost of education is so high Mm -hmm. and the student debt burden is so high that people are having to undergo medical procedures and and finding ways out of it one of the ways out of that burden of debt is egg donation in the United States in Spain the cost of education is virtually you know four hundred dollars I think Four hundred euros, I think, a semester or a year. I can't, I can't remember in detail, but it's so little that people aren't having to do it to pay the, to pay that kind of debt. There might be other kind of debt, but not that kind of debt. So that's one of the things that I find that's really remarkable. Another thing that I find remarkable is that um, there's often this concern that if we had an egg donor registry, for example, where People could connect with their biological kin or biological donors, and so on, that you would lose egg donors, especially in the United States. And we already know that with direct to consumer genetic testing, anonymity is out the door anyway, right? It's just, and so what can clinics and agencies do to inform donors better about the fact that this is not, you know, maybe they don't know your identity now. But that doesn't mean they won't know it a year from now, five years from now, or 18 years from now. So, you know, there's no way of of promising privacy or anonymity. But interestingly, at least in the pool of data, the pool of donors that I've surveyed, that isn't really an issue. The majority want to actually connect with the biological offspring. And many have actually gone out and tried to to find them using direct-to-consumer genetic testing or made themselves available to be found through DTC testing so the idea that if we ended up ending anonymity that donors would fall off you know that donors would not come forward to donate is not supported by my data
0: well and i recently this past spring met one of my egg donor babies oh. um for the first time she's 17 and we met and you know and my my first donation was anonymous but my subsequent donations were all open and okay. Being able to have a conversation with her, meeting her face to face and realizing that how important it truly is for Mm -hmm. that donor conceived person to have Mm -hmm. that access. You know, nothing's changed as far as how I feel about her or how she feels about me or how her parents feel about her or, you know, or anything of that sort, but her having that information and now knowing for her own benefit, whether Mm -hmm. she never has a medical issue down the road or regardless of what it is, she has a right to know that information. And I definitely feel that, yes, every really, quite honestly, every donation should be open. Yeah. And, you know,
1: it's interesting. And one of the donors that I interviewed who specifically set out to donate not anonymously to have an open donation when i asked her so the why question her response was well you know as a donor and having friends who are adopted and and so on and so forth i know that you lose a part of yourself when you don't know where you come from mm. and and so she didn't want any children produced you know that she helped bring into the world to have that sense of not having an identity and so she wanted to make sure she could do whatever she could to prevent that from happening.
0: Now, I know you guys are obviously still in the thrones of um, doing the research, but what has been some of the biggest revelations or insights you've gained from your research over the years?
1: Oh, that, that's, there's, there's so many. Um, and, some, and these are all things that I'm writing about, too. Um, one of the things I find interesting, especially coming at it from the perception of as an anthropologist looking at how do we think about genetic material? How do we think about the value of genetic material? Like what kind of price we put on it, right? And one of the things that I find astounding (laughs) in in a range of ways is just how much compensation varies in the United States Mm. based on a donor's traits. Mm -hmm. And that is something you don't see, again, anywhere else in the world the US is sort of a uniquely commercial market. And because intended parents do the selection, it's sort of like, you know, consumer demand, right? So agencies and, and sometimes clinics, but usually agencies are going to sort of try to recruit donors that they know are going to be popular, that they know are going to sort of go fast, you know, that are going to be uh, in demand. And because that's sort of, the bottom financial line, right? They have to, it's a business and they need to keep the business moving and 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 profitable. Whereas in, for example, Spain, you don't get any of that. All donors are paid a flat rate of 1,100 euros. And in Spain, the physician selects the donor to match with the intended parent and the intended parent doesn't get any information about them at all. Now there's good things and bad things about both models, but the effect of the Spanish model, where it's where the donors are selected purely on their phenotypic similarity to the recipient, so that they look to look alike, that does away with this sort of tiered market that we have in the United States. So I would say that in the United States we have, like I said, this tiered market based on on traits, and in, in Spain it's all sort of egalitarian market. Now, on the other hand, the other side of that is that a donor can't say, well. It's not worth it to me to do this for two thousand dollars, but it would be worth it to me to do it for twenty-five thousand dollars or what have you. So here, I think donors have more negotiating power if they're so inclined to do that. Whereas at the same time, there's all these ethical ramifications of what does that mean, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of how we think about money and and genetic material and the children that are produced from that, mm-hmm. you know,
0: feeling like they're transactions. Mm-hmm. So, well, here too, in the donors, I mean. Until, when I can't remember when this happened, where there was a donor that took, I believe it was, she took ASRM to court or something, or there was a lawsuit about how, you know, agencies or whomever cannot dictate to a donor how much she can receive as compensation. I mean, you can set tears, but you can still get a donor in coming into the door and saying, no, that's not what I want. I want this. Right. Yeah and so
1: and that was an interesting case because ASRM had set the guideline it wasn't ever a, a cap it wasn't Correct. always a guideline but but they had set that guideline in order to try to offset the possibility that people would come forward to donate out of you know sort of financial coercion you know to try to reduce that incentive the financial incentive and the Kamakahi case basically lifted the guideline which was never a cap it kind of was misconstrued in the case from what i read but it's still you know it it actually and actually in my data in my quantitative data that i'm that i'm working on right now in terms of analyzing it i can see in the donors in my study the the sort of the high compensation up until 2014 and versus the high compensation after 2014 after that case was settled and after that case was settled the high compensation, you know, the range was what the range is. You get some that are paid two thousand, some that are paid fifty thousand, and there's the whole range in between, usually around seven to ten thousand dollars. But the high point in my data jumped from about thirty thousand to about sixty thousand. So mm-hmm. that was really interesting to see how the how both the high compensation as well as sort of the middle range compensation increased after Kamikahi was decided. But it's interesting, you know, on the one hand who's to say that a donor shouldn't dictate what she feels like she wants to earn to do that. But on the other hand, when you have that kind of a system set up, it sets up these other kinds of challenging questions about, you know, why would this donor be worth more than that donor, you know, in terms of ancestry, in terms of eye color, in terms of all these things mm-hmm. um, versus in Spain, where, like I said, it's more egalitarian and more med- more medically based rather than social criteria. Mm-hmm. Like, so for example, here, if somebody has a PhD or a master's or whatever from M- MIT, they're going to get a lot more money than somebody from, with a master's with a who's just gone to community college, for right. example. Whereas in Spain, education doesn't matter in terms of how much you're going to get compensated. So um, that's interesting to me as well. But, yeah.
0: So are there more donors in Spain than there is in the U.S. or vice versa?
1: I think both places are equally popular as far as destinations and locations for egg donation, especially given Spain is the primary destination for egg donation throughout Europe, because you have a number of European countries like Germany and so on, where it's illegal, or France with or, and Italy, where there's very few donors. So people go to Spain. Plus, Spain is relatively low cost, especially compared to the United States. And you do get, they do have a substantial pool of donors, so to speak, in in most Spanish clinics and egg banks. And in the U.S., there doesn't seem to be much of a shortage of donors either. It tends to mostly be on the coasts, like California and New York are, are two of the primary places where people travel to do egg donation. But it's you know, obviously, as you know, throughout the United States as well. So,
0: Now, I'd like to talk about the dark side of the fertility industry and what you alluded to. We would like to think of the fertility as all happiness, love, and bringing beautiful new life into this world, which it is. Yeah. But the fact is that there's also a dark side of legal issues, persistent medical effects, and emotional distress that many donors and surrogates don't know about before agreeing to donate or carry for intended parents. What has been your experience with the dark side of the fertility industry?
1: And like you said, I want to emphasize that it's not all the dark side. You know, I'm not anti-ed donation. I am pro-informed consent. And so one of the things I see happening with informed consent is that, for example, if a donor is reading an informed consent form and they ask the donor recruiter, oh, what is this OHSS stuff it's mentioning, ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome? Sometimes it's been told to me from egg donors that their donor recruiter said something along the lines of, oh, you don't have to worry about that. Risks never happen. Okay, well... They do happen, and, and they happen far more frequently than is cited in most of the literature. So, for example, when looking at the health outcomes for egg donors, there really is no long-term longitudinal study that's looking at the impact of egg donation on donor health over time or in the short term. The best that we have are you know some smaller studies, and, and of course, the study that I'm working on in terms of looking at egg donors' rates of OHSS, for example, is in my survey. And what I find is that about, I don't have the numbers right off the top of my head, but so far about 15% have complained of moderate to severe OHSS immediately following their donations. And that's that a mean. lot different than mm-hmm. the 1%. And so so that was you too, mm-hmm. right? And what they're not told is that that there are different protocols that can be used that will minimize or not completely eliminate, but minimize that risk, like a Lupron agonist trigger. And back when you were donating, they were using mostly HCG or combined triggers. So that's probably why. And another dark side that I see is that, especially with the increase in the ability to freeze eggs or the rise in the ability to freeze eggs with vitrification is that in some Some donors and some clinics um, have reported to me, obviously, extremely high egg counts per cycle, 50, 60, 78. I think I have one that reported 83. And even with a Lupron trigger, in those high-producing donors, once you get to be above 30 or 40 eggs, you're still at risk of OHSS even with a Lupron trigger, at least that's what I've seen in my data. So the Lupron trigger may reduce the risk, but it doesn't completely eliminate it. Yeah. Plus, another of the one of the challenges I see is that because in the United States or potentially because in the United States, there's there's such a more of a consumerist business kind of model in, in our culture, there tends to be, I think, in some practices, this, this, this drive to get as many as eggs get as many eggs from that donor per cycle as you can. Mm -hmm, Right. mm -hmm. And that ends up in, you know, when you have donors producing numbers in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, to me that there's a question as to whether that is conservative medical practice, right? Mm -hmm. Because with most of the medication protocols, if you see that you have a donor with a high resting antifollicle count rate, if you see that she's producing a lot of follicles during the, the beginning parts of the stimulation and you're doing that, that vaginal, ultrasound, and you can see how many are developing, as a physician, you can choose to bring that number down by reducing the dosages, right? And some doctors do that, and some doctors don't. And so, for example, when I was in Spain, I had the opportunity to observe quite a number of egg retrievals and so on. I saw one retrieval where the donor had about 48 eggs, which was high But all the other ones that I saw, I think I, I witnessed about 10, they were all between 12 and 20. So not excessively high numbers. And the donors in my study, the ones who knew how many eggs they produced, were not reporting excessively high numbers. But here in the United States, the average number of eggs that I'm seeing in the donors in my survey are about 25 per cycle. And that's average. So you know that the low and the high are much, the high is much higher than that 25, right?
0: Yes, definitely. Most definitely.
1: Yeah. And I think that the egg freezing feeds into that because now that you have a model where you don't have to give all 30 or 40 eggs to one intended parent, one set of intended parents, right? You can split those up into batches. And if you're selling, you know, six batches of five, for fifteen thousand dollars each, mm-hmm. your, your clinic or your bank is going to make a lot more money than if you're just selling them directly all thirty eggs to one set of intended parents for twenty five. So, so that business model keeps entering into medical care, and I think it's particularly gotten worse with the influx of venture capitalism and private equity oh, into the donor space.
0: I, that one I have to agree with one hundred percent. So, yeah. is there a cap? And so you know the US they say don't egg donors shouldn't donate any more than six times in a lifetime is there a similar cap in Spain
1: Yeah and it's interesting again in the United States again that's a guideline it's not it's not a, a hard right.
0: well everything detail. in the United States is a guideline because there is no oversight in this industry there's no laws there's no regulations there's nothing so yes everything <laughs> right. we talk about is a guideline Exactly yeah, yeah.
1: but um in Spain The cap is six offspring or six donations per donor, whichever comes first.
0: So they track it.
1: They have a registry and they track it. And this registry has been in development for like the past five or six years. And so I've watched it over the past several years as it's grown and and become uh, more widely utilized by the clinics. And now it's finally fully operational with about 90% of the clinics participating. So what they do is, if a donor goes in, you know, to a clinic, wants to donate, immediately when she's filling out that paperwork and going through her screenings and so on, as soon as she's accepted, she's given a donor number, and that donor number goes into their system, and they track how many of eggs, how many eggs per cycle, how many live births per cycle, where those live births are, and how many cycles she's completed. So, and I, it's. Yeah,
0: so it's go the ahead. government tracking it.
1: It's the, yeah, the Ministry of Health. It's the the Spanish Ministry of Health, mm-hmm. um, and so they're tracking all those cycles. Now, a donor can, if she reaches six offspring in Spain, she can still have six offspring in in France and Italy and every all these other different countries. But she can't go beyond six cycles. So, even if she could, her eggs can still be used in these other countries, she still can't go beyond the six cycles and they'll cut her off once they do. And if a clinic has a donor, so if a donor goes to one clinic and tries to shop around and go to several clinics, if she goes from clinic A and maxes out there and then goes to clinic B, clinic B will like type her number or her name into the system, find out that she's maxed out and say, sorry, you can't donate anymore. So my my thinking is that for a while has been, we need to develop a registry here in the United States to better track, um, what's happening. And I think in the United States, unlike Spain, in the United States, it could also be used as a mechanism for helping people connect mm-hmm. you know, with this anonymity issue. Whereas in Spain, anonymity is mandatory. So it's not used for that purpose, but it is used for tracking donor cycles.
0: So, I mean, I know that one of the, obviously the biggest problems that we're having right now is especially for donor conceived people and this whole anonymity and not being having access to you know, the other side of you, if you will. Right. So how do they handle that in Spain? And I know this is not a focus about just Spain, but obviously given that you have such insight in there and comparing the different countries and how drastically things are, I'm curious what, how they perceive donor conceived people and the rights of donor conceived people.
1: That question has just been coming up recently. So direct-to-consumer ancestry testing has not really hit Spain yet. There's reason to think that it might, but Spain has a different history than the United States, right? So the United States has a long, long history of of being a country of both voluntary and forced immigration, right? Whereas in Spain, you you don't have that long history of people coming from other countries and, and settling there. The general population pretty much has this the sense of identity as we're we're Spanish. Yes, there are immigrants from South America, Mexico, et cetera, et cetera. But for the the majority of the population, there's a very strong Spanish identity, and people's people's names are are connected to the villages that their ancestors came from. You know, so if you know somebody's last name is De Garayo or whatever, he's from Garayo. <laughs> you know, right? So the Spanish identity is instilled in the name. So there's not as much of a sense of not knowing where you come from among Spaniards. And so there's a sense that among the people in the fertility industry that I've spoken to in Spain, there's a sense that, oh, that's not going to happen here because Spanish people, Spanish culture is different than American culture, which is a a strong possibility. Although in Spain, you also have, you know, the children that were stolen during the Franco era and set out for ad- adoption or sent off to other places, and so there could be a tendency among some of those people to want to either find those ancestors or find their Spanish connectors when they connections, given that they found out that they were adopted out. So it's not unthinkable to think that genetic ancestry testing won't make it to Spain, and I know there are some different businesses, I think Ancestry, as well as a Spanish-based business called 24 Genetics, that are starting those Ancestry testing to make that available in Spain. So on the one hand, you don't get the same kind of people going out and finding that the donor can see, people going out and finding that the person they thought was their biological father isn't, that kind of thing. There's a much more um, secrecy privacy there in that regard. And Spain requires donor anonymity and it requires intended parent anonymity and it requires that that information never be shared outside you know in terms of being able to find each other and so on donors and and intended parents are not able to connect at all they're not able to have any kind of information shared basically at all so there's some very strong guardrails on maintaining anonymity and so i don't think that that's going to change anytime soon but there are a lot of discussions that are coming out, especially with pressure from the EU, because the EU standpoint is basically that people have a right to know, right? So you have sort of Spanish culture pushing back against the broader European culture and some of this tension surrounding anonymity and might and mites and delicacy people.
0: Well, that's definitely fascinating information for sure. So I'm curious. What have you uncovered in your research that nobody seems to be talking about, but probably should?
1: Um, interesting question. What have I uncovered that people aren't talking about but should? Well, I mean, I think people are concerned about potential health risks to donors, but they're talking about it, but not doing th- anything about it. There are some pieces of legislation I know that are starting to go forward on the rights of donor-conceived people and, and donors to have access to information. And also there are some legislative bills in different states that are, have been going forward regarding the rights of donors to have to have information about their rights and responsibilities. But the fact that they do have rights, right? I think that's really important. I think a lot of times in this whole system that we have, egg donors in particular are often viewed as a means to an end Mm. and not as whole people that Mm. are affected by this as well. And I think there needs to be a lot more attention to the impact on egg donors as human beings, not just as a means to help somebody else get pregnant. And there are a lot, you know, as you know, as a donor yourself, your perceptions change over time. You know, when you're 20 and you need that money to help you get, buy books or or whatever, you go on vacation if that's what you want to do with it. You have a very different perspective than when you're 40, 50, have your own kids, don't have your own kids. Maybe you have infertility later and there's other families raising your biological children and you can never have any of your own. I mean, there's so many issues that come into that person's experience and how again how it changes over time and that aren't really i think talked about yes egg donors get a a counseling session at the beginning when they decide to go through it sometimes it's a five-minute counseling session and it's just a a green light to okay you're good to go other times it's more thoughtful and and longer like maybe an hour um, where they really ask the donor some questions to help invoke introspection but those can vary there's no standard there's no standard of informed consent there's no standard of the psychological process before becoming a donor and there's no standard for addressing sort of some of the things you might need to think about down the road and prepare yourself for one day if you if you want to meet your ki- the, your biological kids or you don't want to meet your biological kids and you are forced to or something mm-hmm. or you're forced to connect so there's a whole range of things i think especially from the donors experience that aren't discussed uh, at this point because again there's this notion that um that the real focus is getting that patient pregnant right, right. it's not, and everything else is sort of peripheral to that mm-hmm.
0: yes i agree and i i mean i definitely understand the importance of getting a full picture. And I think as a fertility industry, we are not doing enough mm-hmm. to protect all sides,
1: right. including
0: the donor conceived exactly. children that are born. And I feel like it is our responsibility to mm-hmm. do that. you know. And I feel that if you get into this industry and you're raising your hand and saying, I want to... Be, get into this industry and work in this industry and serve people in this industry, then you need to be looking at the entire picture and not just the here and now and making the bottom line revenue for now, that right. in five years ne- from now, you're not even going to have. Right, <laughs> exactly, you know? yeah. So yeah. now, of course- it's not all doom and gloom in the fertility industry, no. right? Yeah. You know, the point of drawing attention to these stories is to affect positive change and to ensure everyone who enters this world is well-informed, as you stated. Uh, what do you believe needs to change within the fertility industry to get it to the point where we have fewer of these issues occurring?
1: I think, especially with, especially in the world of egg donation, but, you know, you can branch it out larger, definitely the, there needs to be a better more intensive standardized informed consent process. Um, and I think there should be a, something that's standard that is set by the ASRM and, and, and advisors to the ASRM that are not in the fertility space, you know, people like researchers like me, et cetera, to help come up with, okay, what would good informed consent look like? And how can we have that instituted across all practices, you know, in order to allow this to go forward in a in a, in a better way? i think also that we need to have a registry the fact that it's so interesting that in spain it was the medical professionals that drove the decision to to, to establish a registry you know they were on board with it from the get go and, and here you know the number of times that i've asked representatives of the asrm you know well why not a registry you know it makes sense well who's going to pay for it if we have a registry we're going to lose donors blah 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 always an excuse but to me if you're going to be doing these kinds of procedures on young women that that could potentially affect their health and fertility there needs to be some follow-up and to anything less than that is unethical as far as i'm concerned because you cannot provide informed consent that first piece unless you have the data that informs them okay Yes, 15% of donors or 10% of donors or 1% of donors are going to get this or might get this. So the risks are this, this, and this for each potential outcome, right? Whether it's a nicked artery, OHSS, what have you. There's a number of potential risks. Okay, so informed consent, registry, and I think that the anonymity thing, there needs to be a policy more towards open identity Non anonymity because anonymity is not happening anyway, so you might as well set up a system so that people can not suffer, (laughs) you know, so that so that donor-conceived people can find that missing piece of themselves, you know, when they become adults or whenever they're ready. So ending anonymity registry, follow tracking health over time, and I think also rather than than guidelines really institute caps. Mm-hmm. You know, when I hear a donor tell me, Oh, well I did six cycles, but then they called me back for a seventh to do a sibling cycle. And then another sibling cycle and another sim- sibling cycle. Now she's up at nine, you know, I mean,
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And there lies the problem. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think the commercial thing aspect of it is, is problematic. I'm not sure how to solve it, but I think it's problematic.
0: Yeah. I mean, obviously, uh- I'm an agency owner. I work with surrogates. I work with egg donors, but, and even given my own personal experience, you know, when donors come in, we're interviewing them and asking them, are you really sure? Have you right. thought about the long term? You know, 15 years from now, given them mm-hmm. the situation of my case where, you know, I've met my egg donor babies. My children have met them. My, my mother oh, my. has met them. My husband has met them. You know, this is not, and it's not something that I ever hid. It was never something that I felt that I needed to hide. Right, um, right. And so I have a very different perspective than probably a lot of other people. How do egg donors need to be better informed, prepared, or treated within the industry?
1: A lot of bed donors have said to me things like, I want to feel like I'm the equal patient. I don't want to feel like I'm just a cash cow to them. And you know, uh, and answering a donor's questions when she, when she's going through the process, treating her like a patient, treating her with respect, considering her schedule, cons- you know, just treating her like she deserves to be treated in this process of helping somebody else, right? I think would go a really long way. I, I've had a lot of donors complain to me about the care they've received, about not being, you know, having the informed consent sort of disregarded, you know, in terms of when they ask questions about uh, health risks and so on, feeling like they're just, you know, not treated as as real patients, not having access to their own medical records. Mm. So many donors have told me that they were told that they can't have access to their own medical records under HIPAA. They don't fall under the. So anything involving their body, they have a right to know about. Right. Mm -hmm. So they should have access to the medical records. They should not have to have to pay twenty five dollars to get a copy of their medical records or what have you. They need to be treated as equal patients. They need to have their questions answered and um, they need to be treated with respect and not overstimulated just to get more eggs because that's more profitable. I think just basic good health care would go a long way. Yes. and basic yeah and basic informed consent throughout the process
0: yeah yeah no i agree and no we keep talking about donors but how about surrogates like do surrogates need to be better informed prepared or treated within the industry as well well yeah i, I actually have interviewed a, a handful of surrogates i haven't interviewed as many
1: surrogates as i have egg donors but and you get the same thing with surrogacy i think is that um especially with surrogacy And especially now in a in you know that Roe v. Wade is no longer held up by the this supreme this court. (laughs) Um, yeah, yeah. especially given those parameters, I mean when you're going through the process of surrogacy, your body is not your body, right? Right. You're signing your body over to somebody else. And in light of this this roe decision or anti-roe decision, I think anybody that is considering doing surrogacy needs to be in a state where abortion is available without question in case they need to access that during that process. Mm-hmm. Um, t- to me, uh, if I were you know, thinking about all the potential risks that any pregnancy can 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 carry, but surrogacy pre- pregnancies can carry a, a somewhat higher risk, especially if you're using um, a donor egg rather than your own egg then I would not personally be a surrogate in a state where I could not get an abortion. If my medical, if my health was, was at risk.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: I think that's something that's really important for the surrogacy ind- industry to consider about how do we navigate this process in a post row world where you might have a surrogate that lives in Alabama or that lives in Georgia or Florida or wherever have you, Ohio for crying out loud. What do you do about that? Yep. <laughs> you know? Yep. And that especially, I think also, really raises the stakes for the two embryo transfer in any place where there's no access to abortion, given that the risks increase if you have um, two embryo transfers, it needs to be limited to one.
0: Yes, right. um, Yeah, absolutely. A lot of these changes need to come from the professionals in this industry, I feel anyway. But what can intended parents do to ensure everyone who's helping their family become whole has a good experience?
1: Yeah, and I I think the intended—I think the intended parents can be very strong advocates for their donor, for their surrogate, or what have you. And I think that requires education sometimes on the intended parents' part. And I know because for a very long time, I was my earlier research was with people you know trying to conceive and and uh, unsuccessfully and going through infertility. And so I know both sides of it, and I know the trauma that people go through when they've been trying. To conceive unsuccessfully on their own for one, two, three, five, ten plus years, right? And the trauma of finally coming to terms—you know, for heterosexual uh, cu- individuals or couples—finally cu- coming to terms with the idea that they're not going to be able to use their own egg mm-hmm. and to use an egg donor. That's a huge step. For same-sex couples, uh, male couples, it's always going to be the case that you're going to use an egg donor or surrogate or adopt you know but but for uh, a woman who has to use an egg donor that's a big step to make but even so and you're focusing on yourself and and your own process and your own fertility journey you can still have a voice for the people who are helping you in that process and I think that would go a long way to inform or to help with ensuring best practices you know in multiple areas like I, I know I've talked to a donor who was in an open identity uh, situation with uh, an intended parent. And and the doctor had told the intended parent that the donor was producing a lot of eggs and the intended parent said, well, wait a minute, we only need, you know, we don't need that many. Can you scale back from eggs? So you can, you know, think there's ways that the intended parent can step in if they have that information. So, yes. um, yeah.
0: Yeah. What can we look forward to within your research? Are you publishing anything soon? I hope so, yeah.
1: There's an article I'm trying to get out um, in, to one publication today. Um, I will be working on a book, but that's going to be a, a bit down the road. I've been in conversation with some some presses. I do have some publications on informed consent and some presentations that I've given at the ASRM on my eggdonorresearch.org website. So if people go to eggdonorresearch.org and click on the R Research tab, any publications that I can make publicly available I I will put them there. I also have on my diantober.com website articles that for more uh, like lay press like you know articles that I've put either been interviewed in for Wired or or articles that I've published in like Los Angeles Review of Books or whatever. So articles that I've written for online and print um presses are, are are there. And yeah, and I've got a book in the works and I've got um, A number of other articles that I'm trying to get out as soon as possible,
0: but I have so much data. It's
1: like I have to sit down and analyze it first.
0: Lastly, how do you hope your research affects the industry?
1: Some of my critiques can be, I think, in some cases, some people might feel, "Oh, wow, she's critique," you know, like the hackles go up kind of thing, you know, the guard goes up. But where I'm coming from is. You know, I anything that is a critique is also comes along with how do we make this better? Right. And that's always my focus. Of, I'm not trying to say, oh, nobody should donate eggs. They are. But how can we do it better? Yep. Right. Yep. And and so that's my focus. And I, and I really hope that people in the in the fertility industry and and legislators and so on can see the data that I've compiled and say, OK this is a challenge that we have, and this is what we can do to overcome it. For example, the high OHSS rates that I have with donors in my study. Yes, some of them are older donors from you know decades ago. And yes, they had a different protocol than donors today. But there's there are still things that people can do to improve informed consent, to improve donor care, to make Records available and so on, and so I my my hope is that people look at the work that I'm doing and say, okay, she's raised some important issues, and we need to figure out how we're going to work on this. Yeah. So yeah. that's kind of where I'm coming from, and I absolutely want to see a, a registry. Yeah. I, mean, I think it's yeah. so important, and I would like to see the fertility on board with
0: that. You know. Yes. Yeah. I agree. I wholeheartedly agree. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, thank you, Diane, for your time and being on the show today. I really appreciate it. And we'll make sure to include all of your contact information on our show notes. And I would love to have you back on again. Um, You know, maybe this time we'll next time we'll talk about the exact data that you have found and what your research shows. So thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Absolutely. And thank you for having me.
0: Thank you so much for listening. If you found this episode helpful, please rate Fertility Cafe on your favorite listening platform and share this episode with anyone you think could benefit from hearing it. Thank you so much for joining me today. Until next time, remember, love has no limits. Neither should parenthood.